This is an interview with Adam Gzewaczewski, deep learning architect at NVIDIA for over six years. Before NVIDIA, Adam did a PhD in information retrieval systems, which ended in 2013, and then worked as a research engineer at Jaguar Land Rover. This interview is the third and last interview in partnership with NVIDIA and the GTC event. Here's your last chance to win an RTX 4080. You just have to attend the free GTC event, take a screenshot and send it to me. You will see that there are a lot of incredibly interesting talks, including the ones that we'll discuss in this interview. I hope you enjoy it. If you could go over your back background, I've seen that you've done sure. a PhD and worked as a research scientist and now at NVIDIA. So I would love if you could like go back a few years and into especially the academics background and then how you transition upward into NVIDIA. Sure. So, you know, life is a journey in a sense and many things, they happen by accident. So. In, in on, on university, uh, when I was still in Poland, we've we have been toying with this idea with my colleague to 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 start a business, uh, focusing on finding tenders. I used to live in this like large metropolitan area, and 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 with a lot of different cities, everyone with a different tender process. So this is how I started uh, looking at the problem of, of information retrieval. That bit didn't work out, but. On the back of it, at some point of time, I've submitted an application for funding of a PhD focused on information retrieval, so process of finding information, not necessarily in the internet, but and 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 funny enough, despite the fact that statistically I didn't have very high chances, someone liked it. That particular application was rejected, but one of the reviewers suggested that I submit it to a different funding body, and that was accepted and. Funnily enough, this is how I started doing my PhD, focused on you know, finding information. I specialized in the process of supporting software engineers in software development process. So many of you uh, uh, most likely heard about Visual Studio, uh, the, the programming uh, interface from, uh, from Microsoft. And right now, Microsoft has this thing called Codex. So effectively, my my PhD was focused on building something like that. Obviously, not with neural networks, but that wasn't the, the, the time for neural networks. With much more traditional approaches, but effectively, we've been doing that. We've been trying to, you know, crawl various online code repositories and inline uh, provide code recommendation that would go beyond what was then IntelliSense. And when was this? Oh, when was it? I I think I started my PhD in. What, what was it, 2011? Yes. So definitely a time before no, yeah. neural networks were understood, but at that point of time, uh, uh, no one perceived them as something that mm. can work particularly well. And 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 you know, computation didn't exist to <clears throat> to train anything meaningful. So during my PhD, I was you know, dealing with much more, much more conventional algorithms, latent Dirichlet allocation. And, and also spent a lot of time looking at human behavior of search. So opportunistic programming, so how people actually formulate the search terms. So that's that. And funnily enough, when I was finishing my PhD, even before I finished, it turned out because I used to do it in, in the Midlands that a nearby Jaguar Land Rover was just kicking off a, a, a part of the research department focusing on telematics, so connected car and they, and needed people that understand machine learning. And 
you know, that, that I, 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 I had a conversation that sounded interesting. So uh, after, even, yeah, right after submitting my reviews to PhD, even before the defense uh, of the, uh, the the thesis itself, I think I moved uh, to Jaguar Rover Research, and then we've, there we've been doing a lot of different things. For those that are interested, just go to YouTube and type self-learning car Jaguar Rover. That was kind of a project that I helped to to shape. I wasn't working on it myself. It was a fairly large group, but that was one of the bigger things that I was focusing on and rollout of telematics. And from there, it was just a fairly organic journey. Part of those projects involved neural networks. Coincidentally, it, it wasn't like a super aware life decision at that point of time. It wasn't obvious that neural networks mm. will actually work as well as they will. But we've looked at Andrew Engs and, and Baidu's work on automatic speech recognition. This is something that was needed. Automatic speech recognition in the car is, is complicated. You have a lot of background noise. Uh, so we've looked at that, we've, we've started to look at reproducing some of that work. And this is how I, oh, beyond just traditional machine learning background, created a bit of background in in automotive. And it, it, it so happened that uh, NVIDIA recruiter was searching for people, you noticed the profile on LinkedIn, reached out. And after I don't know how many conversations, and I think the process like took nine months because it wasn't that I've applied and went for a formal interview yeah. process immediately. Like there was a bit of a back and forth. I joined NVIDIA in 2017 and and started to help with, at that time, predominantly also automotive. So working a lot with OEMs, so car manufacturers and tier one, tier one suppliers, predominantly focusing on perception for the self-driving car and trying to help them, you know, define the process of training perception algorithms, which was at that point of time, super difficult. Like you have to appreciate that in 2017, a lot of things that we take for granted right now didn't work. Yeah. So like humankind didn't know how to scale neural networks. We just didn't. We, and, and, and that, that works in many different ways. We didn't know how to make them deeper because they would explode and not converge. So for those of you that don't believe me, just look at some older papers so for example at um what was the name of the like first uh, I, I think in inception it, it, it you'll notice that it has those like multiple losses this uh, one at the top but then also some on the side that's kind of so some tricks to stabilize the training process and we definitely didn't know how to train well in data parallel way with large batch sizes not to mention that the tools didn't exist this is like horovod I, it, 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 that wasn't something that, that was available. Hmm. And so, so, so there was quite a lot of work around that. Also, understanding of hardware just started to form, formulate. And we had to discover a lot of things that are obvious today. And, and, and that, that's the journey. So on the back of that, I, I've learned how to scale neural networks. So when natural language processing, eh, like this new revolution started with GPT and BERT, it became obvious that unsupervised training has a chance of working, but for that we'll need very large models, very large data sets to focus on that. And this is how I am right now where I am, a journey. Basically, you were already trying to scale the models that existed in the days, it's just that the hardware didn't allow you. No, like no one knew how to do it. Yeah. So, so, so that knowledge didn't exist. I very distinctively remember 
in Eurips 2017 in December, I've attended that and there was a workshop on uh, AI at, uh, at HPC scale. No one knew, you know, there were people from Google, Facebook, no one knew how to scale those models. It wasn't obvious what to do when batch size exceeds a certain threshold. Very bad things happen to optimization if you do that. Uh, Jan Lekun is, 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 I think one said that uh, friends uh, uh, don't allow friends to train with large bar sizes, that it's good for their uh, mental health. And, and that was true at that point of time. Now, obviously, you train with extremely large bar sizes. But... Mm. So it was definitely a good, like you, you started at the right time since you, you already had quite a lot of experience in the field before it, it got so, so much hype, like in the, the past, since 2018, let's see, let's see. You know. It's uh, you say luck, but it's always luck is a big part of life. Yes, but you you always look at the decisions ahead of you, you look at them critically, and you try to make a good decision at that point of time. And you know, th those those kind of changes that I've made seemed logical. You know, they could have ended up being a mistake, but fortunately they weren't. But... And for did you really want to do a PhD, or was this just to to work on the the project you had in mind? <laughs> How many people do you know that just went straight out of university and know what, what does it even mean? Like, wh what does it mean to do a PhD and then have an academic career? That, that's, an, that's, a, that's a super abstract thing. Maybe if you yeah. have parents and uh, that, are, that are, you know, publishing for a living. <laughs> But, you know, my father uh, is a, was a miner. My mother is on a railway. So I clearly didn't have that understanding. You know, it sounded like a good idea at the time. And the fact that I managed to win, in, you know, a pot of money to also pay for it and sustain me for a period of time helped a lot with the decision. Mm. But did you already have an idea in mind of like right now, for example, in artificial intelligence, a lot of people think that a PhD might be required to get a good job. And so like they are just aiming for a title. Sure. So think about it, like you're an employer, yes? You need to hire someone, you get 500 CVs. You need to choose somehow who you're going to interview. Mm. You cannot interview everyone. It's just not physically possible. You cannot even interview a large group of people because every person that you're going to interview, that's at least, well, I would say two, three hours of work if you want to do it well, prepare to notes, think about it. So you really have to be, you know, quite selective at the get-go and you need to use some heuristics and you get a cv so what can you look what can you look at evidence of you know, you know evidence that would suggest that that person can do their job mm. phd can be one of them and if you don't have a phd and you're a young person how else would you prove yourself if you know achieved something uh, published a paper contributed substantially to an to an open source project and you know phd is not strictly required but you need to start somehow and phd is a in a sense an easy way because it's super prescribed you go to the university you follow a program and typically if you don't you know make some mistakes of have, have a lot of bad luck at the end of it you'll have a phd you would have contributed in a bunch of projects you have published a bunch of papers it achieves something that you can then through which you can describe your your skills if you have some other way of doing it and there are people that, that do that uh, amazing but uh, gaining the same level of experience without going through like four-year phd program is is sometimes challenging but we did hire 
a, a group of amazing people into into my broader team without PhDs because they kind of proved that they can can, can do the work they need to be doing. And when you say you hired, the, were you the one of the people making decisions, looking at the CV oh, or just looking at the the profile and sure. signing? So so. so hired either personally into my team and prior to having a team <laughs> that I have supported hiring. So I've interviewed and I made notes, it's a critical assessment of their capabilities. In that case, may I ask, how are you assessing their capabilities first uh, before the interview, but also during the interview? For example, when you say that there sure. are different ways of, of proving that you can do the work, the PhD is, is one way, but what would be the sure. other ways that you, you, you've yeah. seen or that you are looking for? Like the, the most obvious thing, but you'd be surprised how few people do it, is to actually read the job description. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not kidding you. Really, a lot of people will send a generic CV without any consideration to what is it that the employer is looking for. So reading a jo the job description helps. Yeah. And then taking the next step, and after reading the job description, tailoring your CV so that you're answering the questions via your CV that needs to be answered. Mm. So, okay, the, the employer said that they want to see evidence of me knowing a certain technology. How about <laughs> I include that information and not talk about something irrelevant? Yeah. So, so that, that is the secret sauce, really. Just reading the, the job description and you know, showing a bit of empathy and, and, and trying to, to, to spend time in, in helping the person that might know nothing about the technology to read um, through the CV. In our case, we can uh, spend a lot of technical time uh, going through them, but in many organizations, you will have either a HR person or a I don't know, broker that has nothing, that knows nothing about the technology. Mm. And they are just matching keywords. So if you don't do yourself a favor and actually read, <laughs> the job description and then include appropriate evidence, then you have no chance of going through that first filter. Yeah. But then if when you get through the, the this this first sure. round, there's a second round of uh, for example, selecting like the, the best ten percent or something. So if for example you have a lot of resume and C V that includes the skills you are looking for, is there any uh, projects or or academics level that are more interesting to others? Like, for example, is it fine if his experience is all into Kaggle, different Kaggle competitions? Or are you looking for someone that built a startup or, sure. or, or push something online? <clears throat> so, so actually, and I think we'll talk about it later because we've talked about it earlier, but uh, like, uh, I, at some point, and, and really, we should spend some time about it. Like building AI uh, AI systems, is not it's not a trivial task, mm -hmm. and they vary. We, I think I've referred to it as almost like building cars. And and you, there are no people people that know how to build cars don't exist. That's just not possible. A car is a super complicated end to end system composed of countless different components, and you typically need a fairly large collection of specialists. So I, I don't think I have ever hired a person that knows machine learning AI. I am typically looking much narrower than that. And so a person that understands inference, a person that understands automatic speech recognition models, 
a person that understand uh, to an extent natural language processing mm. a person that shows evidence of experience in deploying computer vision pipelines uh, into production a person that understands embedded systems uh, Kaggle is maybe an evidence of a person knowing to an extent traditional machine learning because in Kaggle there are very rarely neural network based competitions most people really want to basically learn to do everything so it's not possible more, so, yeah so be more generalist but you 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 would advise to rather focus on something which will maybe help you build a stronger or stronger portfolio for a very specific job it's not possible to know everything hmm. it's just not like uh, there are there, there exists this small subset of people that seem to have superhuman capability and consume information much faster than and everyone else and and they the, those people can know a bit more yeah. but it's just not possible i'm very i'm trying to focus right now on two things namely scaling of natural language processing pipelines and and inference so optimizing models for production and and i i don't claim to be keeping up to up to date with the literature because between reading i have to do also other things like help customers resolve issues and and so it's just physically not possible yeah Obviously, some high level of general knowledge helps. What is it like for, for example, if someone gets through the first steps and starts the actual interviews? What what does it look like? How how many interviews or what the not not, not really the questions, but how what is the shape of the interview and and the format of the interviews? So, sure. So every organization and more frequently, even a group in the organization will have their own way depending on their own needs and capabilities and and bandwidth. So I cannot comment for NVIDIA. I cannot even comment for my broader team. I can tell you how I do it. Yep. Yes. So I tend to be quite empathic and I start by reading the CV. Yes. And in the same way as I would like them to read the job description, I read the CV and I typically just ask them about the things that they have written in the CV and make sure that they actually understand them because you know, what's the point of asking them about something that is not listed there. I would hope that CV has enough, you know, knowledge there already for, for so that I, I believe that that person can do the job and so, and I'll just focus typically on that. And if there are certain gaps between the CV and what I need them to do, I'll also be focusing on that. So if they would have read the job description and prepared to the interview by looking at all of the things listed there, they should be able to have a very meaningful conversation with me. So a, an ideal preparation for such an interview would be to, as you said, look read, at the description. Read the job description, yeah. yes. Read the description and understand it, but also look further into the bits of the description that you are not sure you are skilled about. You know, so let's say I'm looking for someone that, that, that understands, I don't know, inference process and I'm, I'm writing that I need someone that will be among many things that will be supporting customers in uh, quantization our training. It's a huge chance that someone will ask me about quantization our training. It might be a simple thing and I might spend five minutes reading about it and understand it very well. And in fact, it is. But if I don't even devote two minutes to, to even on high level understand it it shows that you know like it's also to some extent that i don't care mm. 
Um, sure. I've seen that you were a, a deep learning architect at NVIDIA. That's correct. Could you explain a bit what is a deep learning architect and especially what it, what is it in your case? Because I assume as with sure. most title, it may vary depending on the company. That, and... that, that's correct. So, uh, so, so at NVIDIA, I think the, 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 that means actually something quite different to what it means in many other companies. So solution architects are part of pre-sales organization. So their goal is to support customers in adoption of our technology. But NVIDIA tends to focus on, on things that are difficult. Uh, so that's almost like uh, one of the key principles that drive uh, the, the selection of what technologies NVIDIA is and is not developing. As a consequence, solution architects tend to be, you know, very specialized in, 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 in like quite narrow. Mm. A narrow field so but but the role is on high level quite straightforward at least to explain we effectively have in contrast to research scientists that that understand you know one topic one very narrow topic very well um, our role is to understand substantially broader set of topics also relatively well but obviously nowhere near as well as 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 individual researchers and and help to bring those all of those things together. Because as I mentioned, building of AI applications is almost like designing and manufacturing cars. It's a lot of pieces that need yeah. to come together. And an architect is a person that can grasp those pieces, maybe not understand each and every component to its finest detail, but grasp those pieces together and bring them into a holistic and to-end working solution. And what pieces are you working on? You mentioned that you were mainly working sure. on, on scaling, but are there yeah. any other pieces? Sure. That so that's my core area of competence. So, you know, a lot of people throughout Europe, if they need to, 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 to know something about that piece, they, they would reach out to me. And I have other colleagues that are specialized in, in, in other things as well, that are my go-to uh, 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 support uh, people. For example, a colleague of my Miriam, she specializes in Riva, which is our a platform for conversational AI. I, I, I have a, quite a bit of respect for Dai, for his systems knowledge and, and so on and so forth. Um, so, so I specialize in that, but I support a broad range of, of, of activities of customers because especially when customers are just starting the journey, uh, a lot of things uh, uh, I can cover with my knowledge. So, you know, stuff associated with data preparation, labeling, <laughs> Uh, establishing first pipelines, development of first uh, metrics, um, uh, uh, kicking off first jobs, monitoring their performance, doing error analysis, measuring efficiency with which they execute, first deployment into what will become a production system. And so, so the end-to-end -end process, we try to support customers. Some of them know all of that already, and then they have very specific questions. And then we just work with engineering to fix bugs that might be in the software. Some of them don't, and they require more holistic support. Mm. So you mentioned customers. I assume you are part of a team at NVIDIA that helps with <laughs> other yeah. companies asking for NVIDIA's help using their That's product. Correct, or... yeah. Our mission is to support uh, the broader community 
in adoption of AI technologies. Maybe the word customer is a bit misleading because and, and, and NVIDIA sells through partners. And you can mm. buy our GPUs from AWS or Hewlett Packard or Dell, Micro, etc. Uh, but yes, our mission is to make sure that the broad community uh, can and adopts our technologies. And yes, that includes GPUs, but like, G like we are more of a software engineering company than a hardware uh, manufacturer. Uh, uh, the entire deep learning stack is, is is filled with NVIDIA software from QDNN through countless PyTorch libraries. We are a major contributor to PyTorch TensorFlow and Triton Inference Server, TensorRT, and many, many others. Could you go over a bit more details into one specific recent project that you've had or had to help with? We, we have an upcoming conference called the GTC. It will be on the 20th. And there will be two projects that I've been supporting uh, recently. I will not be able to go beyond what is already published on the website. I want to uh, leave yeah, the surprise. Uh, uh, to the people that will actually be with me presenting on the on the event, but like we have two talks, one with Jaguland Rover, and, and another one with Deutsche Bank, and and in both cases I was supporting them in development of natural language processing capability for you know different use cases, totally different use cases, totally different sectors, but the same technology stack and same problems. You know, I have a problem to solve. Uh, that problem is important to me. You know, how, how do I, how do I, you know, create a training data set that is sufficiently uh, big to allow us to achieve our goals? Mm. You know, how do I scale the training process? When, once I've succeeded and I've reached my metrics, how do I now provide this user to a large group of people and solve, you know, some fairly standard yet not trivial to solve problems like, you know, um, GP utilization making sure that it's high, reaching latency targets when executing those models, scaling those models. So what if the, you know, the demand from the users is bumpy? How do I you know, deploy dynamically a couple additional GPUs yeah. and then scale down? All of those problems are obviously solvable, but they require a lot of tools and a lot of knowledge. So we help and point them into the right direction. And what's the, for example, you said that the, the kind of the same technology were applied very differently on the two sure. other two projects. So what's the, what, what are the similar challenges on, on both projects, but on all your projects, is, is there a, a recurrent challenge or something that right now you, you know how to do, but it's like complicated for other people to do and thus need your help. So most of the problems, when you look at them from again, miles away, they, they seem simple. What is really difficult is the fact that life does not work like that. You don't get one thing. Instead, you get every single day a medium scale problem to solve. And there's just a lot of them. And you know, we, we want to label data. How much data do we need? Okay, we need to establish that. And how exactly do we label? How, let's define that. Okay, that, that's, that's, that's a lot of data to label. I cannot do it in one evening. So who exactly will label? Uh, the data. Okay, I'm not labeling the data. I need to explain how exactly I want to label to all of those people that I just hired. Okay, they've labeled some data. How do I know that they've labeled it in the way that that is that that that, that is appropriate? Yes. 
okay, I cannot do all of that quality analysis. I need to, you know, maybe get a dedicated person to oversee that process. And you go through the pipeline and all of those problems in itself are not like rocket science, but all of them need to be solved. And some of them actually, actually are surprisingly tricky. And since you mentioned the working with NLP, mainly NLP tasks, yeah. you are also working with very large models and, and very That's large correct. data set as well. So may I ask how the different, um, not customers, but the different people that are working with you are dealing with, with these very large either model and data sets. So like a lot of, of compute as well as a lot of, of space required. So what's your typical solution for that? Or just like, so, how do you press, press it down? So, so two years ago, like this would be a very difficult conversation, but yeah. today tools just exist. Like you can go to, 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 to your fa favorite search engine and, and, and search for say Nemo Megatron. And that's a tool with which you can largely change the language code. And I don't know, you want to build a model for Polish. You, you change the language code, it will download a pile data set. You then click and if you have compute, that will train you a fairly decent language model of almost any size you want. I think we've published hyperparameters for models up to 175 billion parameters. And it will scale perfectly as long as you have the right hardware. So by perfectly, I mean linearly. So, so, so that, that's not a problem. We have published reference designs for how to build systems that will scale linearly. We have this thing called superpot reference architectures and many, uh, many, uh, many, uh, many people are reusing those also for their own uh, system design. So, so we know exactly how to, how to train and, and uh, prompt tune or adapter fine tune or uh, uh, those models. Uh, the literature exists today. This is not as big of a challenge uh, as you might think. And, you know, for an individual, the amount of hardware needed can be scary. If you think about, oh, how much my car costs, but, but, but then, you know, a typical large company, uh, sometimes in a canteen will, will spend the <laughs> same amount of money on sandwiches in a year. <laughs> And what it takes to train those models and electricity. So, so those are uh, not as uh, as challenging problems as you might think. Mm. And there are many, many startups that have set up either in-house or uh, via some partners in uh, large training systems that they use for training of those jobs. So the, compared to the past, the current challenge is mainly to find which tool to use and how to to use them in a way that they would be like cost-effective rather than developing something yourself. There are a lot of organizations that are developing tools themselves, but if you don't want to develop tools for training large language models, you don't have to. You just go to uh, Nemo websites, you download the code assets and you download the container, Docker container that packages everything that you need, including the software. You configure a single YAML file to point it to, to where the data is located and choose the size you, you want. And actually preparing the data is always difficult. It's not as cheesy as, yes, you can download like pile and train on that, but you know, that model will, will not have all necessarily all the properties you want. The systems hardware exists for training of those models. 
it's not that difficult. A big, one of the big challenge is like people. They, there aren't that many people that actually know that those tools exist, let alone uh, know how to use them or uh, have any hands-on experience using them. Uh, but that's just a function of all of this being very new. Bear in mind, I think BERT paper, and that's not a large language model, that was published in what, 2018? No, end of 2019, where we've shown curves uh, demonstrating that larger NLP architectures trained with larger models and larger data sets uh, uh, improve in sample efficiency. So all of that is super new. So what would you, well, I assume this is one of the things that you will talk in the two events at, at GTC coming, so people can learn more sure. about how to to scale NLP models mm -hmm. and, and just to deploy them. Yeah, at, yeah, and we'll at, have at dedicated talks devoted to that as well. So I think those talks, are, the, the two talks that I've mentioned are predominantly focused on what specifically Deutsche Bank and Jagland Rover ha has done. But uh, we will have dedicated talks also focusing on, um, uh, on, on, on large language models from various different perspectives, from hardware to software. Um, we have this thing called LM service, which is like hosted large language model. Uh, so it will be all sorts. Yeah, perfect. And so if, if for, for the audience, if you are interested in learning more about what we've just discussed, there's the, the, the talks will be in, in the description below. So you, and it's yeah. as, as Adam said, it's completely free and it's during yeah, the GTC fancy. event coming. So yep. just to, to go a bit more into the, your, your NVIDIA work. I would mm -hmm. just like to ask a very basic question that is what what is your day-to-day -day life at nvidia what are you you doing on a regular basis our job is is quite flexible yes and and really changes with uh, with not only the technology landscape but also with uh, where our customers are so when i've joined in 2017 my job was dramatically different to what it is right now yes so in 2017, there weren't there wasn't that much of an adoption yeah. of deep neural networks. We had some, you know, selected customers that we've been supporting on a day-to-day -day basis. We've been supporting a lot of academic and business events, yes, preparing talks and doing ev evangelization, and, and and now it's it's dramatically different. Right now, a lot of those early customers matured. We have like very large inference deployments. So I personally have a couple customers that will have multiple thousands of, of, of instances of Python inference server. We have regular engineering calls during which they ask questions, ask for features, uh, erase bugs, and I have to work with product management to, to prioritize and resolve them. Uh, we, we definitely have now less, less of a presence on those uh, like business-focused AI events because there is less need to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and I don't think I have a, 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 a super strict daily routine. Yes, I have a, a schedule of engineering calls with a fairly large number of organizations, like every week, maybe every two weeks, maybe every month, depending on the pace of their progress. I'll dial in, we'd have a conversation about progress they made, issues, challenges, maybe bugs. Uh, I would then try to resolve some myself. I would then pass some on to engineering. And I support development of, of proposals, just day-to-day -day conversations with customers, answering deeply technical questions around like, details, so you know, things such as sizing, scaling, you know, 
How yeah. many GPUs do we need to train a model of this size on this data set? Or how many do we need to, 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 to be able to work with a team of six to, to do, I don't know, prompt learning or adapter tuning on, on working towards this problem? So, so um, and then it changes throughout the year as well. So closer to events like GTC, we, we, we focus slightly more on the content. Uh, sometimes prior to GTC, we, we, we support development of demos. Um, um, we have some customers that we work very closely with, Lighthouse account customers that we support more intensively. So for example, I just published a paper with a company called InstaDeep on nucleotide transformers. So I, don't, I know very little about biology, uh, <laughs> admittedly, but I do know how to force neural networks to scale well. So I was you know, hands-on helping them to make sure that their very large language model works very well on proteins. So, um, so, so it, 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 there isn't a, a single recipe yeah. that I follow on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, super interesting. It seems like for all the interviews that I had recently with uh, people working at NVIDIA, you have a very broad range of, of projects that you can participate sure. in and learn from. So it seems really cool. Yeah, NVIDIA is uh, trying through their culture to be very agile and uh, and quickly adapt to this uh, admittedly insane uh, uh, technological landscape. Yeah. And would you say that is that this technology is more insane now than it was like in 2018 when you first joined NVIDIA? Dramatically. Dramatically more. So I have like almost every day or every year I say the same thing. I've never seen such a fast rate of progress. Yeah, uh, it's unbelievable. Like if you would take, I don't know what was published right now on those instruction tuned models uh, and take it to an academic conference two or three years ago, they would refer you to a mental institution. Like, I don't think anyone would have, would have believed that in such a short period of time, those model would exhibit those types of behavior, mm. especially that in, in most cases, we are not necessarily explicitly training them to exhibit those behaviors. Those are emergent features. Most of those models are just trained to predict the next token. Yeah, it's indeed crazy. And how do you keep up with, with this rate of progress? Uh, I, don't, I don't think I, I do. Yeah, so I have my day-to-day <laughs> -day job. I do a bit of reading based on, we have a, a, an amazing research team and and, and we have in, internal uh, email and other newsletters where people just raise the most in, important stuff. So they do an amazing job at filtering. Oh, nice. But I, I, I don't, I don't like, it's not possible. So not, not even across entire AI, but even right now within natural language processing, it's just borderline impossible to keep yeah. up with everything. And you have to learn to let go and focus on what is it that you're doing? What are the problems that you have? in front of you solve them and, and and try to add value like that so as the field is maturing like this or just getting crazier <clears throat> would you say that you have to be more and more specific on on what you are doing right compared to the to f five or six years ago oh definitely so uh, we had that conversation with some of my uh, colleagues uh, I don't remember exactly when, doesn't matter, I guess. So when I joined NVIDIA in 2017, it was somehow possible, yet already challenging, for me to grasp everything AI NVIDIA. Right now, it's just not, uh, not practical, no, yeah. not, not, not possible. 
And it's too much. Would, would you say that it's, that it's more challenging now compared to then when you, you know, for example, it's, diff it's definitely different challenges. Back then, mm -hmm. you had to learn a lot about everything, basically, or like you, it was difficult to know what to learn about just because you, you have, it's not as broad, so you can allow yourself to learn about a bit everything compared mm -hmm. to versus now, you, you have to learn a lot about a very specific thing. And the, yeah, the, as I said, the challenges are, are very different. Would you say that it's harder now or harder then with the different challenges and different things to, to do? I'm not sure harder, right? At that point of time, it was also quite hard because yeah. a lot of things were super non-obvious. And right now, there's just a lot of very good quality uh, research and engineering coming out. Uh, so so I, I just you have to learn to let go. Just uh, it's OK. You, you cannot know everything. I, 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 at some point, I was trying to keep up with both natural language processing and computer vision research. But I, I, I think I had to let go of computer vision. I know, obviously, that you know, transformer architectures are very popular. On occasion, I'll skim through a paper to, to make sure that I more or less know how to understand them. but. If you were, and I look at multimodal architectures now a lot, so that helps me, uh, helps me be somehow up to speed and unsupervised models. But if you were to ask me what is right now the best architecture for I don't know object detection on uh, uh, on MS Cocai, I don't know. Yeah, you can ask ChatGPT. So that's. Yeah, I can you go to papers with code. Doesn't matter. I just I don't know from the top of my head. Yeah. You have to let go. There's too much. Yeah, it's even, this thing is even stronger now. It, when Google first came up, it's it's already mm -hmm. a different mindset of, instead of trying to gather knowledge in your own mind, you just need to understand how to find the knowledge because sure. Google has everything accessible from, from your fingertips. But now it's it's even more towards that, that way of just basically you need to, to know how to type to ChatGPT or whatever machine learning model that will give you the, ans the answer if it's not hallucinating, but that's another thing. But like, it's, yeah, it's, what I think is that it, it's very dangerous for our own memory, just because we don't have to know as many things, nearly as many things as we did in the past. And so maybe our memory will, will just atrophy or, or something, but that's. <laughs> no, it's still useful to, 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 to memorize stuff. It's just. You cannot just rely on, on search, you know, your expertise come from the fact that you can bring together facts and combine them together to like, create new insights. For your current project, which is something that I think a lot of people are interested in too, scaling mm -hmm. and natural language processing. Sure. Uh, what, what is your, well, th this question has two folds. The first one is what is your favorite tools to use? And the second one is what is your tech stack, uh, uh, programming language and other like internal tools you are using? So the tools that we're using are open sources and I use uh, almost exclusively those. So on, on a day to day basis, when it comes to NLP and I do other stuff as well, don't get me wrong. But, <laughs> we use Nemo. Uh, uh, I, I use Nemo for both natural language processing, but I work with some ad, uh, quite a lot also in 
like this broader conversational AI. So I do support quite a few customers with automatic speech recognition as well, and less so in text-to-speech. And, and Nemo uh, provides you know, foundations for, for those models as well. <clears throat> for users that don't want to be exposed to the, 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 the low-level elements of implementations of Nemo, we also have this thing called TAO, which stands for um, uh, Train Adapt Optimize, uh, uh, which uh, effectively helps people with less of model knowledge to just fine-tune models on their own data sets. Um, I, so I use, I use, I use Nemo and, and historically Megatron LM also for a lot of natural language processing work. <laughs> Prior to the, the, the generative models um, where we've been working with smaller BERT-like architectures, those were typically just standalone models that you can still find on our deep learning examples Git repository. And on inference front, I predominantly, if not exclusively, work with Triton Inference Server, which is an open source inference server used by many, uh, used by Microsoft, uh, integrated in Teams, Office, um, used by American Express, and, and, and many other organizations. Um, and it has a backend called Faster Transformer, through which, uh, which is still quite early, but it, it already works quite well, in my opinion. In which, through which you can integrate even the largest of language models uh, for, for serving. So even if you have a model that doesn't fit into a GPU, uh, Faster Transformer has a tensor and pipeline parallel implementations. You can slice the model in half, either uh, vertically or horizontally, and, 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 and serve it like that. But if, it doesn't, if it's so huge that it doesn't fit into a, you know, whatever many, however many GPUs you have in a several, say, eight, you, it also supports like multi-node serving and it has a lot of tricks up its sleeve around just optimizing uh, autoregressive inference because models like GPT are autoregressive meaning that you generate one token at a time and then you do a lot of forward passes so, so there's a need to do a bit of trickery so that you don't compute the same things over and over again so 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 that's kind of that uh, we were I, I work mostly with PyTorch that's just because the tools are available for PyTorch uh, we, I also work uh, with TensorRT uh, quite a bit. TensorRT is a, is a tool that we also provide to the community that takes a neural network that was trained in, say, PyTorch, or that was exported into Onyx, and it optimizes it for deployment to a specific GPU. So it does things such as I know, fusion of layers, of, of kernels. It does post-training quantization and, and, and quite a few other things. Mm. Um, and that list, uh, I work a lot with Riva. Riva is our stack for uh, uh, for conversational AI, so provides uh, pipelines for automatic speech recognition, text-to-speech, and now also has an early version of uh, Chatbot Maker and all of the satellite utilities around the technologies that I just mentioned. Are you surprised by the fact that open source technologies are so powerful? Like compared to proprietary technologies, are you? Is it something that is like to me? This is something like a, that is kind of mind blowing that everyone can access that and even right now build companies and make profit off of tools that are that were developed openly for for everyone. 
I'm not sure whether I have a very strong opinion or ever thought about this problem in a lot of detail. You know, definitely for technologies that have a lot of a big community, um, this is a blessing. Yes. Yeah. But at the same time, there are countless open source projects that are just maintained by one person and they have no chance of you know, mm -hmm. competing with a dedicated um, enterprise solution. Yeah, I was, uh, ask I was asking that because right now we are in a world where, for example, there could be ChatGPT that is completely owned sure. and built by a specific company. And, and so you have mm -hmm. to pay and you cannot really do, well, you can do a lot with it, but you cannot really work with its inner working and, and it modify it. Whereas, for example, there's the stability AI with open source sure. work. And like, I, I feel like just before stable diffusion the most open source projects were kind of not a pale copy but were under the proprietary technologies most times and i'm I, i'm feeling like there's a, a a turnaround now where open source technologies is becoming closer and closer to companies or even more powerful now is that true like there are plenty of Apache Foundations projects that are just at the foundation of the internet. Yeah, of you know that you know that Linux is open source, yes? Yeah. So I you know they always play the role, but there is always also a role for the commercial products. So so open source is not necessarily cheap, you know that. No, so, of course. Yeah, let's say you have a small company, you take an open source project and something doesn't work, and your only person that understands that project cannot solve it. What do you do? You ask politely to the community and they maybe do or do not help you. That's not that's not a way to do business. So there is obviously value for many other companies to you know, provide uh, commercial services around yeah. those open source projects, provide alternatives. Even NVIDIA, we have this thing called NVIDIA AI Enterprise through which we provide support uh, for you know, people that want it to all of the open source tools. Like, you know, if you find a bug in PyTorch, we'll fix it, yes, for you. And so, so there is a value in those. And 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 if you ever would, like, I, I participated in deployment of production systems. So if stuff goes wrong, you want to fix it. And I just wanted as my, similar to my other questions, what what is the, the biggest challenge or the recurrent challenge in just deploying models? Is there, is it something that is more okay. difficult than other stuff? So you never deploy models. You deploy pipelines. Yeah. Like I, I, I don't think I've ever participated in a project where you deployed a model. The, the, the challenge is that you deploy really a lot of different things that need to work together mm. and that all have different properties. So you, I don't know, in computer vision, uh, let's say you get a video stream. First thing you have to do is to decode the stream. And the coding in itself is super non-trivial. You have to think how you do it. If you just do it in, with some random library on a CPU, that will just be maxing out all of the servers and you, you'll be not making much money. Uh, but you know, if, if you choose the right codec, uh, NVIDIA GPUs have hardware acceleration for video decoding and suddenly that becomes free. But then next step, you want to do some pre-processing. Let's say you've used NVIDIA GPU for decoding. Yes. so. So you want to use a library that does something then, uh, I don't know, trims the, 
trims the, the, the image, doesn't really matter. Uh, but you choose to use a, a CPU library because you, your team knows it. That has implications. You have to make a memory copy from the GPU memory over PCI Express to the host, and you're putting load. So you, you so in most day-to-day -day life, you don't deploy a model, but a quite complicated multi-stage pipeline that typically is composed of substantially more than one neural network. Yeah. Uh, even in computer vision, so you might first of all do, I don't know, identification of regions of interest and classify initially those regions of interest and then pass on those regions to individual in neural networks that do different things, I don't know. In the shop setting, um, uh, theft detection, vandalism detection, uh, or uh, analytics, you want to have a shared decode because for every one of those use cases, you don't want to decode the video stream over and over again. And then you do like common detection of locations and maybe a couple other neural networks. And then you have another neural network that does tracking. And then you might neural network uh, plus a classical tracking algorithm, classical tracking algorithm because it's cheap and neural network because if someone goes to the toilet, he wants to be able to re-identify them. So for re-identification, you'll have a second neural network. So suddenly, what was just, oh, I'll deploy whatever, mask RCNN, it ended up in being this, this quite a big monstrosity of components. And all of them need to work, all of them need to scale. In, in video analytics, it's easy because the workload is like clockwork, 30 frames per second, 30 frames per second. Yes, but in many cases, it's not. So your customers come in waves at Christmas, and then they don't come at all on New, New Year's Eve. Uh, and you don't want to be paying for the hardware. Yeah. It's such a multi-dimensional problem. Uh, inference requires quite a lot of work, quite a lot of people with quite a lot of different expertise. Mm. So the main challenges come with the the complexity of the, the solution as well as the complexity of the pressure and, and randomness behind it. It's just life. Like life yeah. is never that easy. Like even things that seem super trivial when you look at them from from 100 miles away, when you start digging into the detail, have a level of complexity. That level of complexity might not be necessarily high. Like neither of the things that I just mentioned is rocket science, but it's just a lot of it. And you have to systematically tackle every one of those problems. And that requires a bit of patience, a bit of <laughs> character sometimes. And, and, and you know, especially if you have a younger team without experience of doing it earlier, um, quite a bit of, uh, um, time that and this is kind of the the the, the support we provide. Like we we have a very capable team that ha, have has has done those things quite a few times, and this is the type of guidance we give them. So my my, my follow question mm -hmm. was about the mm -hmm. the two talks you we discussed at, that mm -hmm. you will be giving at at uh, GTC. Sure. And so, is there anything else you wanted to mention about those talks? to or, or just at least maybe summarize why should people tune in to those two specific talks that you are giving at, at GTC? So uh, so if you amplify, empath, emphasize with what I just said, yes, uh, <laughs> around just day-to-day -day complexity of solving problems, those talks will be great for you because yeah. you, you'll hear two different groups that are solving two dramatically different problems talk about more or less the same pain points, pain points of you know, getting the first pipeline up and running, writing KPIs, uh, uh, 
and uh, you, you, you'll get their point of view of how to solve those problems and hopefully it will help you plan your uh, your projects a bit better and, and give you some you know ideas on you know what what things to put in place and in which order because I think both of those talks are are, are organized chronologically in a sense that they, they just go through the journey uh, from the very beginning to the very end highlighting all of the key things that caught them by surprise hmm. they also go into motivation uh, in quite a bit of detail so why did those companies that those particular groups decided to embark on that journey and that's also something that might help you maybe if you're not in an engineering role but moreover um, in a management to, uh, 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 to, 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 to help you think more systematically about what is it that is possible with natural language processing so very uh, we should expect very applicable tips from real world examples basically yeah they will they will they will they will people will um, uh, obviously have different experiences, but yeah. yes. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time and for all the very valuable insights. It's, it was really interesting and I learned a lot just in this past hour or so. So thank you very much for your time again. And I was glad to have you on, on this interview. Thank you, Gandhi, and have a great day. You too.